Hello and welcome to Note Doctors Summer Shorts. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In these short episodes, we will be sharing with each other and all of you musical examples and teaching tips covering a wide range of topics. So if you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctor's Summer Shorts. This is our last summer short of the summer because summer is short and we're about to get started with our classes and our fall semester. So we'll be back with our long form interview uh, episodes in September, but we have one more summer short on our current series, which is theory, desert, island pieces. Those are those pieces of music that you would take with you to the desert island that you would never leave. So these pieces that you would live with and cherish for the rest of your life and that you love to teach and share with your students. Um, and so we are talking with Jen about hers because uh, last week we had Ben's uh, Legend of Zelda theme by Koji Kondo. Um, and then mine was earlier, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed by Joel Thompson. And so today, Jen is last but not least. But before we do that, we do need to make a little quick little shout out to Barbara Wallace, Actually, she is a former colleague of all of us, yes. um, a yep. wonderful uh, friend and uh, theory professor. Uh, we all worked for in some degree uh, at Dallas right. Baptist. So she sent us a super nice email. And so thank you, Barbara. I hope you're enjoying your retirement and your grandchildren and all those things. And um, and we loved hearing from you. Absolutely. Thank and- you, Barbara. And if you would like to send us a hey or a hello or, or what's up, you can do that too. Uh, if you write us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com. So let's turn to Jen, your piece. What is it? And why on earth is it your Theory Desert Island piece? <laughs> There's so many reasons. I'll get into all of them. But uh, the piece that I picked was Leonard Bernstein's Chichester Psalms. And I picked this piece because it's useful for all the levels of theory. It's useful for talking about more than just harmony or even melody. Um, There's a lot of interesting meter and rhythm features in this piece. Um, And there's a lot for students to be able to dig into and do some critical thinking about some of their own kind of analyses and write about. So this is a good piece to introduce students to 20th century sounds, though it's a piece that most of them usually end up liking. There's a lot that is consonant in it or tonal even, um, but then there's also quite a bit that's not. So it kind of gives them an array of that 20th century American music sound. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to just play the beginning a little bit. Sure. Yeah, we can listen to just a little bit of the beginning here.
right. So first of all, this piece gives tons of opportunities to talk about meter and rhythm. In just that part that we heard, you heard six, four, three, four, three, eight, five, four, and two, four, um, often changing every single measure. And um, so there's, <laughs> there's obviously a lot of things, interesting things going on there. A lot of the main themes in the piece are in asymmetrical meters or in mixed meter. So in the first movement, uh, the main theme that kind of just started right when we stopped there is in 7-4. And in the third movement, the main theme is in 10-4. Um, and the, the theme in the second movement is, at least the slow part of it, is mostly going back and forth between 3-4 and 2-4. So one of the things I like to do with students, especially when we're talking about meter or mixed meter, is play it for students and see if they can, first of all, figure out how the how the meter is changing or even that it is changing, maybe figure out what asymmetrical meters they're hearing in these melodies, but also talk about, Bernstein has kind of an uncanny ability to write um, in asymmetrical meters with really disjunct you know, motion going on. And yet somehow it ends up being really legato and beautiful. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I know how he does that. Uh, it's kind of the mystery of Bernstein, but it's true of him, I think. Um, so it, this piece is great for talking about rhythm meter, about writing um, something really coherent that changes meter frequently. And we get into really good discussions, especially in theory four, when we're sort of reintroducing those ideas of asymmetrical meter and mixed meter and things like that at, at DBU, we do that in theory four. And I love encouraging the students to think about why the piece holds together the way that it does, despite the fact that the meter is changing every measure. And I also, I've performed this piece several times. Um, that's probably why this piece is special to me because one of the main times in my life that I performed it was on a tour in Scandinavia with the Dallas Symphony Chorus. It was really cool to introduce this American music to people over there. Many of them were shocked a little bit by that first very loud B flat major seven chord. There were lots of uh, like uh, sort of alarmed people startled uh, on that first chord, but um, it's, it's really fun music and people really enjoy it. Um, but it also, for me, holds that special place of being something that I sang, you know, with lots of other really fun memories. Anyway, having sung the piece, I can say that it's it's not hard to sing, despite all those things I just said. Um, despite the fact that the meter is changing, despite the fact that there's asymmetrical meter and disjunct, you know, melodic motion occurring, it's not hard to sing. It's written well for the voice. Uh, so that's another thing to discuss with students, I'll have them sing a line and say, you know, how challenging was that? What is it that Bernstein did that makes this easier to sing? Of course, it helps if you have a good conductor in the beginning as well. <laughs> they can help you figure out where to come in. Um, <clears throat> so having the opportunity to talk about rhythm and meter is thing number one. Um, I will sometimes use this piece to talk about set theory because that opening idea um, dun, 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 is a zero, two, four, five, I believe. And that shows up a bunch of times. Um, it shows up in transposition. It shows up in inversion, um, throughout the, throughout the piece. And so it lets you 
you can look at kind of the surface level transformations of it and then also take that set kind of deeper and, and look into how it influences how the piece is put together as a whole. Um, I like to talk about this piece and key because there are large sections of it that are in a key. And even the beginning mostly sticks to pitches from B flat major uh, with, you know, some exceptions, but um, talking about how he, how he kind of expresses key in music that can be really dissonant or chromatic. Um, how do we discern key and why does he put a key signature? Couldn't that opening just be in C? Why does he put it in B flat? Things like that are good things to make students think about how music is notated and why a composer might make a decision to write something a particular way. Um, even if it's not always in that key per se, or even if it's exploring some really dissonant and chromatic places. Right. Some sort of centricity without like conventional tonality or. Right. Right. And some of this, there is some conventional tonality. I think it's more centric, as you said, kind of throughout the piece as a whole, but there are some things that are just straight up tonal. Um, mm -hmm. like you, you know, with chords that you would expect and harmonies you would expect and things like that. Yeah, I was looking through some of this just basic searching on the internet and it says here that there are some parallel sevenths in here. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. I don't know that many examples of parallel sevenths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. yes. And that's another one to talk about like, okay, so obviously we're breaking some major voice leading rules here, right? Why? Why does he do <laughs> quote, it? Quote, right. All of those things. What is the effect of that? Why is it okay in this context? All of those kinds of things. Helping students understand that idea of what's appropriate in different styles rather than just parallel fists are bad no matter what at any time in the history of the world, right? Um, <laughs> so here we have parallel sevenths and they work and they work well for a reason. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I also like to talk about melodic treatment in this piece. I already mentioned that there are some really disjunct sections in the music that somehow still kind of hold together and are really coherent. Um, it's, this piece also makes for a good discussion on texture. And we've had this conversation before on the podcast about the fact that we don't really have great terminology for texture. We have like monophonic, polyphonic, homophonic is what we've got. And that doesn't seem sufficient to describe all of the things that we actually encounter in real music. Mm -hmm. um, but I like to compare that first opening section where the choir is all singing in these really kind of dense chords, but they're moving completely together with uh, more contrapuntal sections. So if you go to movement two, for example, um, there's a nice kind of duet that happens right at six minutes. And this duet is between sopranos and altos, has some nice counterpoint.
We just heard the boy soprano enter there. There's a boy soprano solo in this section. Uh, this piece is, was originally written for just completely male singers um, with the intention that the soprano and alto parts be sung by a boys choir. Hmm. Um, so I don't know of very many performances where they're able to pull that off. It's pretty hard and it's very high, hmm. but um, so typically when I've seen it done, it's women singing the upper two voices and he has a note in the score um, that that's acceptable to do, but not preferable, something like that. <laughs> so um yeah even yeah. leonard bernstein had to make concessions even to mm-hmm. his, like, uh, you know and by the way it's <laughs> it's zero two five seven i think not zero two five six i looked at no the you're right it is zero two five seven just no, in case right. we get any angry emails from big uh <laughs> no, song fans and then like a minute later he does zero two five six which is the <laughs> other thing i was going to say that he contracts it uh-huh. sometimes so you'll hear also kind of variants on that main idea which is a mm-hmm. really common set theory thing i'm glad you sure. pointed that out actually but yes it is five seven <laughs> zero two five seven sorry um, i was looking at the score i'm like i don't see the half steps I'm uh, like, where is it <laughs> it was me i said it wrong um i usually talk about text painting in this piece there's a lot of it uh, for one thing, this is a sung Hebrew text, which is not very common. Um, a lot of religious music that students encounter is either in Latin or in, well, mostly in Latin, right? They mostly are encountering masses or magnificats or, you know, things like that, that, that are in Latin and in their lessons and things like that. They're often singing in German or French or Italian, but Hebrew is not very common. Um, this is one of a few pieces, but not many that I've encountered in my life that are actually, um, sung in Hebrew. So that's an interesting element of it as well. The choir has to learn kind of Hebrew diction and how to pronounce it. There's a guide in the front of the piece that Bernstein provides so that singers can tackle singing the music. Um, but in the second movement, especially, uh, the second movement features two texts. Um, first you hear psalm 23 most of us have heard of that one at least the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he leadeth me through green pastures um and then the other one is psalm 2 which is why do the nations rage and it talks about how um like leaders rule people only through their egos rather than on you know moral principles and things like that so in movement two we hear that beautiful boy soprano that we just heard and then paul right around 658 the men enter with this why do the nations rage idea pretty easy to hear the idea of like the nations raging people at war people had discontent with each other and with the people that lead them in that music but what's interesting is that later in the piece 
the women and the boy soprano enter singing that first melody over top this kind of ruckus chaos. And the, the way that he writes it, they're rather unfazed by all of this kind of madness that's going on underneath, which is its own sort of painting of this idea of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This sort of serene, you know, reliance on a higher power is kind of this presence that goes on above all of this chaos underneath. And there, I ask them kind of who, who wins in this battle, right? Between Psalm 23 and Psalm two, who wins? Um, and the students have different answers. It seems sort of like the, uh, the trebles win this in the end. It finishes mostly with them, but the very last few seconds of the movement uh, return that sort of chaotic idea. And it ends with this really loud percussive hit. Um, so it's kind of, an interesting thing to make them think about what, what, what things mean, how analysis can actually be interpretation and how it can help you perform a piece. Um, and then one of my favorite things about this piece is the beginning of movement three, because it, um, it introduces all of the themes that we heard previously Um First, you hear the that opening 0257 idea, but it's now really tortured. It's in the very high strings. Um, it's it's I mean, not that it wasn't tortured at the beginning. <laughs> it's it's you know pretty dissonant there, but it's even more so here. Um, the singers are not singing; it's just the orchestra. And um, eventually, the the boy soprano melody from the second movement enters in muted trumpet, which I think is really interesting because. In movement two, the angry fighting voices underneath are set mostly with muted trumpet. Hmm. So using the boy soprano on this sort of muted trumpet sound, I think is kind of an interesting combination of that idea from movement two. And then it's like the the real theme of movement three is able to actually kind of break through at some point. There's the movement too. Is that with harp as well? I think so. 
And of course it's, it's also that movement two theme is also really distorted and he didn't choose to do the Lama Ragashu, Lama Ragashu part. He chose to do the really lyrical boy soprano line. That's supposed to be about kind of peacefulness. Um, so I have my students do some kind of voice leading work with those initial like cluster chords that you hear. And we do set theory analysis on those as well. Um, I have them consider what other famous piece has all of the themes of the previous movements return before the real theme of the movement is able to emerge. And that is of course, Beethoven nine, um, which is, a, you know, about the brotherhood of man, um, sort of some similar ideas to what we hear in here, but minus maybe the, the religious overtones. So, um, it just, there's a lot of food for thought in this piece and it's a way to sneak in some really dissonant, really complicated music that students end up really enjoying and liking. <laughs> so, and connecting with. Um, so that is why it's my theory desert Island piece for the day. Ask that's... me tomorrow. It could be something different. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope you don't get deserted, you know, today yeah. <laughs> we'll never know um, i think that's a great choice you know thinking about the dissonant melodies it makes me think of something that graham phipps used to say or do we all had graham phipps at, at north texas but he would like go to the piano and and play like this Webern quote and he'd be like you tell me that that's not tonal like like he would like because he's like you know notice how this note like kind of wants to go here we hear it desiring to resolve in a certain way even this like mm -hmm. you know serial or you know 12 tone composer like webern there are these pushes and pulls mm -hmm. that these notes have by virtue of just their relationship and where they come and i feel like you know with with Ber bernstein that that is in those melodies like this kind of Absolutely. natural resolution though it's not necessarily what you expect but maybe it's by repeating these gestures maybe with different intervals with the same kind of contour that you get a sense of inevitability or uh, coherence to these lines and mm -hmm. i wonder if it's because he's he writes so much vocal music too because there's like this like right. natural line even with its surprising intervals but there's this there's a way that the notes move that still makes sense on a certain level you know mm -hmm. It's very true. It's interesting because this piece came um, at an interesting time in Bernstein's life. It was actually commissioned. It was a commissioned work, um, but he had been working on a musical that you've probably never heard of because it totally failed. And I'm not even sure it got produced. And if it did, it ran for a day or something. I mean, it was, it, it really did not succeed at all. And some of the music in Chichester Psalms is from that failed experiment that was the musical that he was writing when he kind of lost that work and was scrambling, what am I going to do? And then he got this commission. And so I know, I know for sure the fast, the, um, the fast melody and movement one, I know for sure that that comes from, from that work. Hmm. And hmm. so sometimes I'll also tell students that story and just talk about how like failure isn't always failure. Sometimes it's just something you carry with you to the next thing, to the next step, to the next whatever, and it becomes a part of your success. This is probably one of Bernstein's most performed works that is not, you know, West Side Story, for example. Right. Um, so 
something that people were like, nobody will ever want to listen to this. Now everybody listens to it and performs it pretty often. Yeah. Um, So I just Googled it. The skin of our teeth um, from 1964, an aborted work from which Bernstein took material to use in his Chichester Psalms. Yeah. Yep. That's great. That's just a great story. Just like with uh, Koji Kondo's um, all-nighter project of yeah. uh, composing Zelda theme, right? And yep. you know these composers, you know, are just humans, and so they have mm-hmm. all-nighters and they have successes and failures, and just like all of us. And so I think that mm-hmm. is a good lesson too. Failure is not failure. Michael Hamilton loves to quote me on that. <laughs> yes, but it's true. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so true. It's so true. Maybe that needs to be like a note doctor's uh, sticker or something. Failure is not failure. <laughs> a t-shirt, failure is yeah. not failure. Ben Graff. <laughs> <laughs> I love to say failure is not failure. You can, my students always, you know, come back to quote me on that one. But it's it's gold as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank I you, Jen. I also noticed, Jen, oh, go ahead. The, uh, I was going to add in, in the third movement, a 10 4. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we the amount of times I've seen 10 4 in my life, I, I can't recall I another. I know. So we cool. didn't listen to that melody. Uh, we could, I think it's that. Never mind. I didn't write down the cue, but <laughs> it's probably, it's not long after where we just stopped um, when we were listening before. But it's also a really gorgeous, very lyrical melody, despite being in 10 4. Yeah. And being a little unusual here and there melodically. So, yeah. Super cool. And that's, I think, what makes his music interesting is those those unusual bits. You know, you think mm-hmm. it's going to go a certain way, but then that strange interval happens or he drops a beat or he adds a beat. And mm-hmm. but by the end, you know, it, it's it's amazing by the end of the piece you're like that's a part of it that's what makes it beautiful that you know that's what completes it or makes it unique and mm-hmm. i don't know he's i'm looking forward to the uh movie that's going to be coming out about him right bradley cooper oh, i didn't i didn't know there was a movie coming out about him yes. either there's there he's were certainly pictures, led a really interesting life there are pictures leaked of bradley cooper like all dressed up like leonard bernstein and it's like oh, wow. uncanny uh wow. like older leonard bernstein like he looks like like kind of this period, like 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's coming at some point. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you, Jen, for sharing your Desert yeah. Island. Hey, if you liked this one, Symphony Number no. 3, Kaddish, will give you way more to talk about. There's a section where all eight voices are singing in different meters, different keys, different tempos at the same time and each section has like a member of that part so like an alto two because that's my group that stands up and conducts the alto twos in their own meter because i mean one conductor can't conduct eight different meters and tempos so if you want to really talk crazy 20th century stuff kaddish symphony number three leonard bernstein it has your back and it has a narrator it's a really cool piece too all right. Yeah. Uh, Charles Ives, come on, step it up there. <laughs> He's only got like two meters going on at the same time. Um, that's great. That's awesome. So Leonard yeah. Bernstein, Chichester Psalms, check it out if you haven't. Um, it's a great piece and a wonderful piece to include in, I think, Jen, you laid it out well in any of any theory class that you might be teaching. Mm-hmm. So. 
Well, that wraps it up for today. And we will be back with our next season. So this will be, this again is our last summer short. So the next time you hear us will be season three of Note Doctors. So uh, we look forward to uh, uh, chatting with our guests this fall. And uh, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.